Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Sunday Edition, and I'm your host, Anthony Corona. I will be getting to the heart of our show in just a moment, but first, let's uh, say hi to Byron, who is all things behind the scenes, engineer extraordinaire. Hey, Byron. Hello. <laughs> so you got anything to share with us about NextGen? You guys are doing a cool event on Saturday, right? Yeah, so we do uh, an event uh, at the last Saturday of each month um, called Saturday Night Live, and it's always a different topic. And uh, this month we are doing a thing all about wordplay. So there's going to be puns and um, there's going to be poetry and uh, lots of lots of just fun stuff uh, revolving around wordplay. Uh, and it's 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 uh, in uh, it's in an honor of uh, National uh, Word Day. So I'm really excited about that. Nice. And uh, what do you got going on on the fun the fun zone this evening? Oh man, I have absolutely no idea. So, uh, my comedy music show that I do every week, I always try to have some sort of theme, uh, but sometimes that theme is like thought of uh, last minute. And this week, that's one of those. That's one of those weeks. So it could just be some random stuff, or I could, you know, you guys might mention something that makes me go, "Oh yeah, I should do a show about blah 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 blah." And it's ByronLee.com, right? If they want to yeah. send you some feedback and or suggestions for the evening. Yeah, <clears> yeah, <throat> that would be me. that would be awesome. My email address is Byron at ByronLee.com if you guys would like to uh, throw an idea out there. So two more quick things. If you guys got um, and had a chance to look at your dots and dashes, there's some great new material up on the ADP website. And of course, time is running out for the ADP Awards this year. There's a bunch of different categories. Go check out ADP, the ADP website. Familiarize yourself with the awards and get those letters in. We're running out of time. All right. Um, I just wanted to mention our converse, two-part conversation on Pride Connection with Harvey Miller should be up in podcast form shortly. Thank you, Mr. Byron Lee. I know a few of you guys have emailed, when can you listen to that? So by the time this show is over, you should be able to go and check out that conversation. And it is absolutely fascinating. Harvey has been around ACB since the late 70s, early 80s. Um, he is an amazing force to be reckoned with. And uh, his story about finding one of the one of only two copies of Louis Braille's original scoring of his and some of his students' music and how Harvey spent years translating it, putting it into a music program called Sibelius. Uh, just a fascinating conversation. Go check it out. And now I am very happy to welcome back friends to the show, Mr. Mark Reichert, our first vice president. 
we uh, we just had you on a couple of weeks ago. So catch us up real quick. What's going on with Cogswell Macy? I know you've held a couple of events surrounding uh, giving us more information and how we can be as active and advocating as strong as possible. Catch us up and let us know what else you need. Yeah, thanks so much, Anthony. And um, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, and thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, means a lot uh, that you would uh, welcome yours truly and uh, the topics we're going to cover. So that mean, means means more to me than you know. Um, on uh, Coswell Basie, so we had an amazing event. Uh, it feels like months ago. It was just just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what, April 6th, I think, if memory serves. And uh, our very own governmental affairs champion, Clark Rockville, uh was our uh, rock star MC. And we had a you know, kind of a lineup of in some ways, the usual suspects, uh, yours truly was, of course, on talking about the blindness provisions of the Cogswell-Macy bill, which if folks have no idea what that is, then that's our fault because we've talked about it so much, but maybe we haven't talked about it the right way so that you know what it's about, what it's really the most comprehensive special education law uh, proposed in a generation or more for kiddos with uh, sensory disabilities, blindness, deafness, and deafblindness. So uh, my, uh, as I like to refer to her, my professional better half, Barbara Redmondo, who's the C- uh, CEO representing the deaf schools and uh, and others uh, that folks may very well know. We sort of walked folks through the individual provisions of the legislation a bit more to, for those who are particularly interested in a sort of a deeper dive on what the heck does this thing do and and perhaps how, more importantly, how does it do it? Uh, and then uh, And then we got down to brass tacks about what it is you can do uh, right now. And uh, so the bottom line there, Anthony, to answer your question is we have begun the process now of organizing the several hundred people who have routinely tuned into those uh, sessions uh, to, uh, to, to sort of help them navigate the process of setting up virtual meetings with their members of Congress. And uh, sort of a subgroup of us is really drilling down into the two committees, one in the House and the one in the Senate. Uh, that have jurisdiction over uh, the Cogswell Macy bill to uh, you know really target those members because of course they're in the best position to try to move the legislation forward. And you said so. You know, bring us up to date. Well, on Friday evening, just less than 20, 48 hours uh, from when this uh, when we're doing this today and when folks are hearing it uh, live, uh, we had an amazing meeting with the uh, committee staff on the House of Representatives side. Uh, who invited us to submit some specific language that perhaps they would be able to promote through the appropriations process, which we don't have to go into all that theology right now, but essentially, you know, it's an annual process whereby the Congress decides how much of their your tax dollars and mine they're going to spend on various things. And, uh, and so uh, it's great to have uh, a, a member of, a, of the key committee with jurisdiction over the Cogswell-Macy bill say, Hey, uh, we may not be able to move anything really soon on the whole Cogswell Macy bill itself, but perhaps we can work with you to get some of the lower hanging fruit uh, in uh, you know in play to sort of direct the U.S. Department of Education to do the right thing. So anyway, I, I just when you're a, when you're a policy nerd and you get those kind of meetings, I mean you're you're glowing all weekend. So I've got a big smile on my face about about that because it's a, it's nice to have that kind of support. So you know we'll see what happens with it. So anyway, that's where we're at. Nice. And, you you know, you sit, um, you know, in two different chairs as far as this is concerned from both your roles. How often does does that happen for ACB that we're able to actually go up on the hill and submit comments for something like this? 
Uh, it might actually happen more than than you think. Uh, so so it's kind of uh, the way I always describe people say, well, how does all this stuff work anyway? It's like you, you get you as an advocate and certainly Congress has it gets at least two bites at the apple on something substantive like, you know, gee, we ought to change the way the law works for kiddos with sensory disabilities. So, you know, you can do it by, of course, changing the main law. Uh, and and uh, I mean, this, that's kind of as obvious, except the problem is, you know, the Congress will only open up that main law, you know, periodically, usually every three, five, six years, something like that. Uh, and that process is called reauthorization. But in any case, you know, the, in, in this particular situation, the main, you know, law that's been on the books since 1975 uh, the last time it was reviewed and opened up was in 2004, and there's lots of reasons we're not going to get into right now about that. So given that there are all kinds of crazy sort of political and other structural things that have made you know, opening up the main law really difficult, then, then you really have to focus on these shorter range uh, legislative vehicles. And of course, an obvious choice uh, to jump on is the, are those pieces of legislation that the Congress – is said to have to do, right? Like the spending bills. Now, we all know they don't, they haven't always done it. That's why we've had government shutdowns. That's why we've had continuing resolutions and blah, blah, blah. But yes, uh, not infrequently are we working with those annual processes, especially the appropriations people, to say it's not just about how much money we want. You know, we hope that you'll take our requests seriously and increase the various programs, uh, funding levels you know, that we care about. But that, that legislation, that process also allows us to tuck in some language to say, and by the way, Department of Education, as you are spending whatever uh, monies are uh, allocated here, we want you to spend them in this way or in that way. And, and you know, it's a shorter term fix. It doesn't change everything. And yes, sometimes departments, federal agencies, imagine this, sometimes bureaucracies uh, thwart what you're doing. Uh, I know that comes as a shock to, to people. So, you know, you kind of have to hammer on them a bit. But it is a tool, and, and we've done it uh, uh, fairly fairly frequently, I think, uh, not just in education, but in a host of other uh, areas. Yeah, I think I'm going to reach out to Clark. He's been on the show quite a few times and, and talk about how bills that, we, that we've worked on in the past have gotten through Congress, ones that have stalled, and, and what the process really looks like. I know a lot of us had some fun on the leadership weekend, you know, talking to all of our representatives and their staff. But, um, you know, when it really comes down to it, you know, what actually stops the bills? What actually gets them pushed forward? Um, mm -hmm. So look for that on a Sunday edition. And Cogswell Macy, if you want more information, uh, as Mark just said, you can catch the podcast advocacy update with um, him and Clark. Or you can hit two Sundays ago, Sunday edition, with um, Debbie Grubb and Lori and a whole bunch of, bunch of other folks. And this guy right here. Uh, we spent two hours really diving into what, what Cogswell Macy is. So that was a pretty great show. Go back and check it out if you didn't get a chance. Uh, oh, and maybe doing... if I could do that shameless plug, let me just add yeah. another URL in there. Uh, if people want to uh, find a text, find text of the bill, uh, find a list of the organizations that is growing by leaps and bounds, which is awesome to see, uh, uh, organizations, national, regional, local, that are supporting the Cogswell Macy bill, you want to find little scripts on, you know, how to kind of stuff on how you can help do stuff. If you go to cogswellmacyact.org, I'll just string it all together. Uh, C-O-G-S-W-E-L-L-M-A-C-Y-A-C-T. 
org, org. Uh, you can uh, have. I, I'm not going to promise you you'll have all of your questions answered there, but I'd stop. I'd start there. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Appreciate that. Awesome. Well, Sunday Edition <clears throat> has been hosting a ongoing conversation about losing sight midlife that has gone off in a lot of different tangents. All great conversation, and I'm really glad I heard Tyson pop on. Uh, Tyson has been my partner for these conversations. Amazing guy, Tyson. Good afternoon. Welcome. Hey, good morning, Anthony and all. So we're going to talk with Mark for a little while. Um, Mark's going to talk about his uh, childhood, getting to ACB, and what's been happening with him. And uh, in the second hour, we're going to do some roundtable talk about reaching out for help and, and other various topics. So I'm really glad you're here, Tyson. We will get back to you in a little while. Jesse, I know you're there. I saw you. Mark, um, it's your story, man. So why don't you start out when you were a kiddo and how you got to ACB, how you became first vice president. And then we'll get into the real nuts and bolts of why you're here today. Great. I, I appreciate that. And, and there may be some folks out there uh, grinning at me through the airwaves here uh, with, with chagrin or something, uh, a wry smile. I, I'm not going to take too much of your time talking about my childhood because quite, quite honestly, it was, it was uh, lovely and awesome and, um, and all that good stuff. But I will say uh, my standard joke here is, you know, I, I was born an upper middle class white blind child. Uh, uh, and uh, had amazing parents uh, who uh, were really supportive. Uh, I would never use the word protective about uh, their approach with me. That having been said, I do think like any parents, of course, they, they want the best for their kiddo. And in my case, I think it's just, I think it would be true whether I had been born uh, blind or sighted. Uh, you know, some people emotionally mature slower and faster than than others i would say you know i've always kind of tended to be a little more on the you know younger sort of emotional size in my teens and certainly in the, the latter years in high school uh i think um you know my parents intuitively or, or explicitly i don't know never actually talked to my mom about this uh might have seen in me things i didn't see in terms of you know uh starting to explore the proverbial dating world or all those kinds of things i think I think I've always tended to be a little slower on the sort of emotional side of things. Um, I was a crazy uh, bookworm nerd, uh, loved to loved to read, was a, in, into piano, uh, all of that. Not really much into sports. I, I joke more about how little I know about it than is the case. But yeah, I, 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 don't, um, I, don't, I don't tend to be much into that. And my dad uh, was a, uh, you know, an ex-World War II, you know, Marine. He was a good bit older than my mom. And uh, he and I had a very, you know, loving, affectionate relationship, uh, for sure. He and I, I think in my teens, like a lot of sons and dads, you know, uh, were a little bit farther apart there. Uh, but I do think on, on some levels, especially as I started to mature, I think, uh, you know, would he have liked to have enjoyed time with a bit more of a, an outdoors, uh, you know, muscly, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's uh, get into some horseplay or whatever out in the yard or do sports together or whatever. Maybe, um, you know, I, like I say, I was more of an indoor kid uh, for sure. And, uh, and then, you know, he ended up having a son uh, who was, you know, had a significant disability, who was very much into arts and books and whatever. Uh, and so maybe that contributed a little bit to, especially as I was getting older to a little bit of that 
distance. But I'm so grateful that in the last 10 years of his life, uh, he and I just became really good friends. And especially around matters of faith, that was something that brought the two of us together. So now in my mom's case, she was, uh, you know, she was the little tigress who made sure her kid got Braille uh, in, uh, you know, and in uh, kindergarten and, and first grade, even though the teachers were saying, oh, he's got plenty of uh, usable vision, which is just, you know, it's in the, it's literally in the eye of the beholder, uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so, yeah, I did have a little bit of smidge in comparison to what I got now, which is zip uh, of usable vision. And of course the pressure was, well, we, let's try to make the most of that. And uh, my mom was, was very determined uh, about Braille. So been a Braille reader all my life. Uh, I'm an LCA kid, Libra's congenital amaurosis. So, you know, uh, there you go. Uh, the rap, supposedly, I, I went, was it in 2004, I think, the very first national LCA conference. And uh, I, I don't, you know, when you sit around chit-chatting with parents of kiddos who are LCA kids, uh, there may very well be published research on this now. I don't follow it that closely, to be candid with you. But we were talking about things and and. One of the commonalities that all the parents were saying is, yeah, as my LCA kids get, no, it's, it's really kind of interesting. There are some common things about these LCA kids that maybe the science doesn't back up, but it sure seems like there's commonalities. And one of them is interested in sort of arts and especially music that the LCA kiddos are really into. Yeah, it's cliche to talk about blind people playing instruments, but it seems like the LCA kids are really into it and taking it a bit more seriously. Uh, but yes, then this other element of dealing with, uh, you know, depression, dealing with uh, those kinds of uh, issues. And, uh, you know, I when I first learned that, I thought, yeah, I can kind of see that. I mean, I've always been, like I say, kind of a, a sensitive person, maybe too sensitive, uh, too thin-skinned. I always just sort of chalked it up to being, this is who I am. You know, some people are more emotional than others, uh, Maybe take things that other people say about you too seriously or reading in to things uh, more sensitively than you should. Uh, but, you know, I just I didn't really I just, well, OK, that's kind of interesting. The LCA kids, huh? this, maybe this is a commonality about them. I don't know. Um, I don't want to spook anybody who <laughs> who may be a parent of a, of a kid with, with LCA to say. So it's inevitable that your child is going to go through, you know, either stuff I've gone through or others. I, I'm not like I say, I'm not so sure that there's science around that. But it is intriguing, and I think it, it's, uh, it may, frankly, just very well be that, as the science definitely reflects, that people with disabilities generally uh, are dealing with things like uh, depression and other conditions. I and mean, obviously, alcoholism is up there. You know, pick what they, any one of the things that they, some of the scientists refer to as comorbidities, which is just an awful, frightening word. Uh, but um, pick any of those, and you're going to see higher incidence across the disability community than, than you might otherwise. So anyway, I'm taking too long on this. I so went to college, uh, uh, elementary and, and, and uh, high school were all you know, public mainstream schools in Florida. Uh, went off to Stetson University in Florida, which is like, yes, Stetson, like the hats and the cologne. Uh, and uh, it's a private little nonprofit, uh, not private little liberal arts school. Uh, most everybody else that I knew and my little set of nerdy uh, speech and debate uh, friends were all going off to law school. And I was kind of heading in that direction anyhow. Uh, 
but kind of, you know, what did I know? I mean, you know, less than nothing when you're that age, you think, you know, everything. And of course the exact opposite is true. Uh, I fell in love with Washington, DC on a, uh, several times over my life as my parents either, you know, came up here just on visits or whatever, but then in college, we did a trip up here. It was one week in, at, in, at the UN, uh, in New York. And then of course, two weeks here in DC. And again, policy nerd, loved it, totally fell in love with it, loved the Metro, began to get around all on my own. And wow, this is really cool. I can uh, zip around anywhere I want. Uh, don't have to have mom drive me there. This is that's a pretty cool, pretty cool arrangement. So I went to George Washington Law School, uh, got out. I, I did college and law school in five and a half years. Not even sort of bragging about it. I would have been bragging about it, you know, 30 years ago. At this point, when I look back at it and I say, why did you do college and law school in five and a half years? Because I thought, I thought it would actually matter to somebody that that record would mean something. And the truth yeah. is, you're, it might matter to your first employer for maybe 10 seconds, and then uh, people move on. But I guess what you should take from that is uh, I, can be, I can be pretty intense about things. If I decide this is what I want to do, I do it, and I want to do it all the way. And even if maybe it would be healthier to slow down, do a little bit differently, uh, maybe I should. And I'll say, so LCA, right? I mean, it's a congenital blind, uh, condition. So if you're born with some vision, inevitably, of course, you lose it. My experience with that was in first uh, semester law school. There I am in, during finals uh, week. And I was trying to use one of these you know, uh, video magnifiers, which we used to call CCTVs, uh, attached to my computer. And I'm sitting there playing with the focus knob thinking, God, this thing's on the fritz. I mean, it seems to be jiggling around. I can't really see what's going on on the screen. You know, it, admittedly, it was only two or three letters on a 21-inch screen. So you, know, you can imagine how inefficient it was. But, of course, it wasn't my machine that was on the fritz. It was me. Uh, and that was the beginning of uh, sort of the end very quickly over the course of about six months or so, losing the rest of the, the little vision that I had. So there I am. I'm in second semester law school and into that summer. Of course, I went to school in the summers, too, because I was trying to get out. And what I really should have done is put a pause on things. I should have said to my parents, hey, I need to, I need to slow down uh, a little bit because I'm going from trying to blink at everything and struggle with that to needing to obviously move over to a screen reader. And, uh, and, and, and instead of taking the time and kind of getting my skills up to speed a little bit and, frankly, getting used to uh, life, you know, and, you know, experiencing a little bit differently because you're, you're not at all dealing with vision at that point. Instead of doing that, uh, I stubbornly just kept at it. Probably some of the lowest grades ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere are mine in the second semester of law school because, of course, I should have stopped and given myself some time. Anyway, whatever. Uh, graduated in 92, uh, looked around for a job for a year and a half. That was a tough year and a half uh, for sure. Uh, and then thanks to uh, a network of good friends and uh, and my I would say my best friend in the whole wide world who I've known for 30 years, Scott Marshall, someone I think a number of us uh, who are listening know quite well, uh, yeah. former ACB employee and just leader in the field, et cetera, uh, has been a friend and mentor and boss at one point uh, because of a network certainly lead, led by him, but others uh, ended up getting my first job at National Industries for the Blind uh, in doing public policy work. And then I suppose the rest there is history. I got totally addicted to the idea of doing the policy 
work, ended up working for ACB for, my joke is 20 minutes. It was more like about 15 months. Uh, but then uh, at AFB, worked for American Foundation for the Blind a couple of times. Uh, and uh, in between there, did a stint as the executive director for the group I work for now. And uh, then went back to AFB because they seduced me back. And, uh, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more in some detail, but uh, ended up now throughout this last couple of years going on a wild ride and uh, now ending up in an interim position as the executive director for AER, uh, who is itself going through a transition as they look for their next permanent uh, exec. Anyway, that, I did my best to try to keep that short, but I don't think I <laughs> succeeded at that. You know what? <clears throat> this is your show today. So, but let's backtrack a little bit. Um, we're we're taking a journey here. Um, let me ask you. We've talked with you know with Tyson, obviously, and some others that have, yeah. have uh, joined us about losing midlife and losing it suddenly. You have a different perspective, and I get glimpses of that perspective. Um, being you know around Gabe and and knowing his story yeah but with all the time that you had knowing something was coming and maybe not knowing exactly when it would hit and how it would hit do you think you know do you think that the professionals that were around you gave you enough of what you needed so that when that moment hit you'd know what to do the special educators yes the folk rehab folks absolutely not uh and, and, and you did not ask this, but I'm, I will infer from your question, whether you meant to or not, you know, also, gee whiz, Mark, what did you do uh, to prepare? Or how did your family prepare? It's true. I mean, if, you, if you're told sort of academically, hey, uh, what the vision you have may very well, you know, by all the laws uh, will likely go away. I, I, it's not that you disbelieve it, but I think because it's so gradual and because, frankly, my vision seemed so stable. Uh, up until uh, going off to law school, you just kind of a start to assume it's like it's, I don't know, you, you take it for granted slash assume that it will be that way. And you just kind of settle into life and, and do your thing. Uh, and, uh, and, and so it is kind of uh, intriguing. I mentioned uh, it, it. I mentioned that the special education folks did, did a great job and maybe not so much folk rehab. And let me be careful to say what I mean by that is, I really only worked with, uh, and it was, I think it was latter part of high school, uh, you know, transitioning right out of, of school into college and beyond uh, with the uh, state folk rehab folks. And what they seemed to be only willing to do with us was to say, oh, yeah, if you if you need uh, if you need readers, we'll be happy to help pay for that or maybe even you know yeah. provide a little bit of compensation for college. And and it may very well be that the you know, frontline rehab counselor I had, uh, you know, was a decent enough human being. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe their, maybe their assumption was, oh, you know, look, I mean, my last name is not Rockefeller or Kennedy, okay? I'm not, I don't want to overplay this, but, you know, maybe they assume, hey, this is a family of some, some reasonable means. Uh, we're not really prepared. He seems to be doing fine. After all, he graduated from high school. He's going off to college. He'll be fine. Yeah, we'll do what we can. We'll throw some money at them if that's really what they think they need from us, but there was no talk about technologies uh, that were sort of evolving at that time. I've been off to college in 87, and I think it was right around that time, not too long thereafter, that we were living with, you know, yummy uh, gizmos like the Braille and Speak. I had no idea, you know, halfway through law school, I still had no idea what the Braille and Speak was and why, because I wasn't particularly tied in 
with the blindness community per se. I mean, you know, I had folks like Scott and others who could help sort of, hey, what about this? Have you ever heard about that? Let me show you these cool gizmos. And, you know, I think you look at that and you say, look, even just if it was informational, uh, it sure would have been nice uh, for somebody along in that period of time who we were connected up with to at least introduce us to these various devices. And as a just practical matter, had we had that knowledge about what the heck was out there, uh, you know, my, my family would have been in a position to, to, to get to put, you know, get my hands on one of those things without having someone pay for it for me. And yet that just shows you, you know, it's just one of many examples. I know people have said, you know, maybe the voc rehab system failed me a bit in that even all we need is just straight up information. Tell us what the heck we can do. You know, we're, we're not familiar with this stuff and they don't necessarily do that. So anyway, so I, I think that answers your question. I hope. It does. <clears throat> and um, journey that we're on. I want to go back. You, um, you declared yourself a nerd. <laughs> and yep. I think, uh, you know, Byron will declare himself a nerd. I declare myself, I'm a jock boy nerd. Um, I love <laughs> both, you know, my, my baseball and my fantasy fiction. And, and um, I was definitely a nerd too. And um, I, I want to ask you if you can remember the first time you classified yourself as a nerd, the first time that you felt differently than your peers and I also want to ask, because you seem to me to be the kind of person that has a, you know, a public persona and, yeah. you know, your inner, your inner, you know, voices may not necessarily match with what you're, what you're putting out there to the world. And I wonder if you have a conscious memory of the first time that your persona came through and, and started to mask, you know, the little boy Mark that was sensitive and, and could and should have had support in that area as well. Yeah, I, I mean, what an insightful question. I guess it would have to be in high school around the time when, you know, everybody else was getting their driver's licenses and starting to go through those life passages of, um, you know, transitioning to an adult, right? I mean, this, of course, follows all of or is, or is, is concomitant with, you know, uh, all the physical and whatever changes that, of course, all of us go through at various stages. But but that that sort of uh, biological we live for that license yeah yeah that's, yeah yeah, yeah. But, it's but it's such, like yeah. you know what while you're kind of coming into an adult consciousness because all the things that are happening to you you're also then further separating from the people who do adult things and and you don't and so I, that's yeah I think that is the first time uh, uh, you know when uh, when that when I had that sort of conscious feeling of oh I'm you know, fundamentally different uh, from these other other people. Yeah. Do you think subconsciously you were packing in as much college, as much law school as you did because subconsciously you knew that, you know, that ticking time bomb was going to go off at some point and your life would change and maybe having gotten all of that over and done with, and, I, and I'm not minimalizing it, but, you know, I'm an overachiever too. So if I can get it all done today, that leaves me with way more time to do more stuff tomorrow. Yeah, possibly. You know, you know, I, you I don't. Think I, I don't feel that. I don't. I think. I think I did it really for two primary reasons. First of all, I really genuinely thought, hey, this is a way I can sort of prove myself to whomever that you know. Hey, I, uh, I got some game. You know, I can get stuff done. Look at me. What look at what I can do. And then the other piece of it is, it wasn't so much like I was trying to escape 
from my parents. But I will say that I think the notion of wanting to, you know, be out there on my own doing my thing, and uh, especially once I kind of lost my heart to, uh, you know, to Washington, D.C. and the metro system and that whole independence oh, yeah. getting around and all that. I mean, you know, Washington is the perfect seductress for me, or was, because it's all of that that I just said combined with the, you know, the public policy and the nerdy stuff with that, the politics. I mean, if you're that kind of kid looking to get out, yeah, you want it, baby. I want, Let's do it. Let's get there as soon as I can. Let's get cracking. Why, why wait? Uh, you know, let's get going. So I think that's really what drove that for whatever reason. Having experienced Florida from, you know, a no vision standpoint at this point, I, I can yeah. imagine that the, the seductiveness of just the, the metro and, and the various bus systems and being yeah. able to get across D.C. in, you know, 40 minutes or, or better, mm-hmm. you know, rather than waiting for rides must have been incredibly freeing at that point. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Happy days when I first moved up here. I just honestly was probably one of the happiest times of my life. Honestly, most people wouldn't say that going to law school is the happiest time of your life, and there <laughs> and there were definitely tough tough times uh, for sure. And I tried to work my little fingers off, but yeah, that was that was a delightful time. So Tyson and I have discussed the grieving process. You know, we both of us have unique story. Everybody has a unique story. I don't want to minimize anyone's story, um, but both you know we both consider us to be pretty unique. When did you start to grieve the eyesight and the life that, you know, I, I'm sure as everybody was taking their driver's license tests and, and taking those first rides in everybody's car, there was a grieving process for that. But when did you start to grieve your eyesight and the life that you weren't going to be able to have and the adjustments that you'd have to make because of, of you know, the time bomb going off? Well, the the, the, the troubles with sort of depression or emotional, you know, uh, well-being, really weren't tied, and I, I still believe this to be the case, now being on the other side of this last couple of years and really you know, sp- spending a lot of time thinking about it, having others who, uh, you know, from a professional and, you know, faith perspective, helping me think through things. I'm, I'm not so sure that I ever went through a period of grief related to my vision loss or that somehow I should have or still need to and the, maybe that doesn't compute for uh, for you or for others, but I would say the reason for that, I think, is because, relatively speaking, it wasn't such – it was like I was making the most of what was a pretty pitiful uh, tool, namely namely eyeballs that almost didn't work at all, but I was hell-bent on trying to make that happen. But I, I want to put that in context. I wasn't doing that sort of instead of Braille or instead of other things. It was just I got in the habit of doing it. Uh, it was slowly going away and kind of went away pretty, uh, you know, precipitously there in, in law school. But I always, I, I, throughout my whole life, I've always identified as someone who is capital B blind. It's always been part of my, you know, sense of things. And of course, as a child, uh, you know, you don't feel the differences between yourself and other people as much as then, as I say, as things go by, those things start to pull you apart as you know you don't get the driver's license you're not doing this you're not and then i think uh the thing that really was a bit of a shock for me was not so much me and my eyesight it was the world uh frankly um i will never forget going to a 
for an interview in that year and a half long, pretty frankly, pretty pretty low, pretty depressing time after law school until I got the first job. You know, going to a uh, going to a law firm on K Street here. You know, swanky where all the all, all the big all the big boys and girls who are lawyers live. K Street downtown DC, and uh, talk to the partner, this guy who you know seemingly would be a pretty brilliant attorney. Mind you, this is what three less than three years since the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? So presumably, as a lawyer, he's actually heard of the ADA, heard of something called you know don't discriminate against people in employment. We have this fine interview, and he says to me, "Well, you know, young man, you've obviously got an impressive story to tell, and uh, and all of that." But I'm not so sure that you can work at this firm because we do we we just we don't have a single braille phone here, uh, and we're not sure how you'd even be able to, you know, pick up the phone and talk to a client. And I think I mean I'm just baffled. But what the hell do you mean a braille phone? I don't even know what that is. I, I, maybe I should have invented mm-hmm. one. I would have. Okay, but it's just uh, it just goes to show you where you say, my God, uh, these are smart people who clearly don't think you have any capacity at all. They're looking at staring you in the face and looking at your resume saying, yeah, he's a graduate of what was at the time. GW was a top 15, you know, law school in the country. You think that that would matter to them? No, it doesn't because they're seeing you through their own sort of, you know, blindness about your, so that's what I mean by grieving. I mean, I don't know that I ever felt grief about my disability, but you better believe it. I have felt grief about, you know, good grief! Can't you see me? Um, and uh, anyway, I, I, we, I could we could do a whole show on experiences and you know employment and and interviews and everything else. And that that story I told was a you know has has a funny piece to it because of the braille phones. But there were lots of those kinds of interviews with just yeah. just painful experiences. And that's when I really felt disabled for the first time, honestly. Uh, and then then of course then I was blessed. I ended up getting caught up in the policy stuff in the blindness system. So all of a sudden, you know, you still know you have a disability, you know that, and there are, there, Lord knows there are plenty of people in the blindness system who discriminate too. Uh, so it's not that you escape it altogether, but it's a different world. It's kind of a, it's a world that is made for, for us in that sense. So I had my brush with how the real world thinks about people with disabilities. And then I, uh, got spoiled again by, by going into a, a blindness system that, uh, you know, is more welcoming to us. Well, you've definitely had some amazing highlights career-wise and, and advocacy-wise for our community. So first and foremost, thank you for, you know, all the things you've done over the years to make things just a little bit better for those like me who came into it suddenly. And <laughs> when I tell you, I didn't have a clue where to go, how to go. I just kept plodding forward. But, you know, all of you who fought through, you know, making the ADA a reality rather than just a piece of paper that said, hey, this should be done. You know, you all fought to make it happen so that, you know, when I came along, thankfully, it was a much easier journey. I I always joke around and say that if Helen Keller were around now, she'd probably be president. You know, (laughs) (laughs) just the, you know, the amazingness of what you know, what she could do with technology and, and the things that are available to us now. I can just, I can imagine her, you know, sitting up there, you know, with Kamala and Joe. But um, I think well, it's, interesting, it's you- interesting. No, no, no. I, I, I love that. And maybe a quick uh, shout out to my former employer uh, before we kind of really get into the, 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 the good, the bad, the ugly here as we wrap this kind of first hour up. I would say um, 
we, you know, the American Foundation for the Blind is in the process now of, I think, putting together what I bet will be a, a pretty compelling uh, documentary about uh, on the life of Helen Keller, picking up, frankly, from uh, the water pump. Well, hopefully, you know what I'm referring to. If you don't, yeah. uh, then, then go study Helen Keller's life. Uh, and, but, you know, picking up from that touching moment where she finally kind of grasps the, what language is all about. And then bringing her into the rest of her life of, of profound, you know, deeply felt activism and progressivism with a capital P, I, I you know, I, I think uh, perhaps just as likely, uh, maybe if Helen would have become president, I can tell you for sure, uh, she'd be she'd be in Minneapolis right now. She uh, and 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 uh, oh gosh, what's the name of that Brooklyn Brooklyn Center? Am I right about that? Uh, where the Brooklyn protests Center, yeah. are going on right now. And, and going to Chicago and going to Indianapolis or going you know, all the places where in this last horrifying year, we've seen people, you know, uh, shot to death, strangled to death, you know, lynched on national television. If you don't think Helen Keller wouldn't have had herself there signing away and voicing it, then, then you don't know who Helen Keller was uh, because she would have been on the front lines of that. And I'm sure uh, any number of people would have labeled her a, you know, counterculture raging socialist uh, yeah yes and all <laughs> yeah. and all the right and all the right-wing talk shows would be i mean you just just absolutely after her as a just total subversive and uh, i don't want to get into this you know it's not about personal politics today but i would just say you know no matter how you feel about that politics if you can't understand how incredible it is for someone who faced the kind of odds that someone does who is deafblind who takes up those causes and then all you know becomes this just force of nature with her comments uh then i don't know what to say to you my my standard joke here is uh anyone who writes books that adolf hitler thought needed to be burned uh they've got my vote and uh and 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 there was helen keller's writings right alongside other legendary folk uh that the third reich of course had to you know was afraid of Uh, and imagine that uh the third reich being frightened of a little deafblind girl pretty pretty amazing yeah, I encourage anybody listening, if you have not, if you've not read the writings of Helen Keller, go, go explore, hit a bard. It is, you know, she's a, an amazing, amazing person. So Mark, you know, <clears throat> you've been around ACB for a very long time. You're our first vice president, but it seems, I don't know if it was pre-COVID or if, if it was a superstorm of all things converging, but it seems like you, you kind of receded into, into the shadows for a while. And yeah. I know that uh, this is, I, first off, I want to just want to say thank you for choosing Sunday edition. Um, I think it's really brave to, to come with, with your story. So I, I don't want to ask too many questions. Tell us, tell us what happened. Where'd you go? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my, my disclaimer here is that as I give you the, the good and the bad, the ugly, I'm not blaming a person. I'm not blaming a group, I'm not blaming myself. I think, I think things just happen. And I think quite frankly, especially when it comes to, you know, mental and emotional stuff, uh, there is a certain amount of guilt, blame, shame that one does to oneself. And quite frankly, that gets done to that person. Uh, But that is, I mean, it's just, that's a whole universe away from how things really, really are. So I just want to put that out there. I don't want anyone to come away and say, oh, he's got, you know, this person or that group or these circumstances, he's got a, you know, it's got them in the crosshairs or something. It's just, it's just not true, but that doesn't change the facts. So 
I, you know, I, hopefully you've got a little glimpse into my little world and how a little bit of how, how my how sensitivity and how my, Oh, I, I'm an only child. That's probably strikingly obvious, which is probably why, why you didn't ask <laughs> yeah. me that. So that's like, we don't need, I'll just put that out there. That just, just add another log to the, to the fire. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I get, I get attached to things and to people, especially the people I care about or issues I care about. I get, I get really emotionally attached to them. Uh, it's not that I don't like change. It's just that, you know, they, they become a part of me. I want to be part of, I want to feel that feeling of belonging. I said to somebody, I forget who, you know, I, I sure as hell do not need to be the, the head of the pack. Uh, but I want to be, I want to be a valuable player. Uh, and I, I need that feeling of being the valuable player. Uh, you know, it's like, you might not see him at the top of the, you know, here we go. I don't try to make a sports analogy, but I, but I don't know anything about sports. Uh, but, you know, it's like every once in a while, hey, if Mark gets to make like a really cool play in the game, that's that's good enough for me. I don't, I don't have to be the I don't have to be the quarterback. I don't have to be the star pitcher. I don't have to be whatever, whoever those people are that lead things. I don't I don't. That's not my thing. But I sure as heck do have a, a real need to feel like I'm, you know, when I get the chance to run with the ball, boy, he can really do it. Uh, so anyway, so, uh, you know, uh, there I am working at AFB for many, many years, worked there twice. Like I say, okay, kind of came and went, uh, went, uh, the second sort of tour of duty with AFB. I was there for, from 2005 to 2018. And, uh, like many organizations, they go through leadership changes. Uh, so Carl Augusto, uh, was there for many years, uh, as the CEO, he left. Then Kirk Adams came on in 2016, I think. Uh, and you know, uh, as is always the case, uh, when there's a change in senior leadership, uh, sometimes there's a reorganization of stuff. Uh, the new senior leaders want to bring in their people. They have a different vision, uh, or think they do, uh, for how they want to do stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, over the course of time, my immediate boss, uh, Paul Schrader, who's a dear friend, love him very much, uh, cool colleague, uh, you know, uh, he decided to, to leave, uh, after Kirk was there, that made some other changes. I thought, well, gee, well now Paul's gone. Maybe I slip into that chair. Uh, and that was not in the cards, uh, there at AFB, uh, other staff were hired and, you know, again, uh, people have different perspectives, personalities. Uh, I don't think that that was a good fit for me, but I, I will say that it wasn't just who, who got what jobs. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, I know enough to know, you didn't get a promotion, uh, you know, that hardly singles you out, Mark, from everybody else in the yeah. world. But what really, but what, what was the challenge was, you know, and by the way, Mark, we also don't want you doing some of the things that you have been doing. And quite frankly, that had been part of your regular, you know, persona, who you are, what you do. And, and I, of course, did not take it just as some kind of a, uh, a business decision or a difference of opinion. Uh, I took it as a very deeply personal, we don't want you, uh, we're moving on. Uh, I think uh, one of the phrases that I know was used about me was, well, Mark's a known quantity and we need, we need to go in a new direction. So, you know, you, you hear things like that. You don't just hear them as business decisions. You hear them as a personal rejection and it's, and, and that's overblown from what I'm sure that that's not what they got bigger fish to fry. They don't 
so of course I was not only hurt by it, but I also have a bit of a temper. Um, you know, when you, when you feel things emotionally, you kind of react, overreact to some things you can not only be hurt easily, but you can overreact with a, you know, a, 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 a temper. And you are and an only just, child. <laughs> this is true. And so I decided, you know what? You don't want me? Screw you. Um, so I left pretty abruptly, decided I was going to go off and try to do my hand at, I don't know, some consulting stuff, or I was going to do, and maybe I'll, I'll work in the rest of cross disability field for a while. Why not? Okay. Being, of course, completely blinded to the fact that, no, Mark, you get attached to things very, you're just, you, you, are you telling me you're going to just walk away? from blindness, you're going to walk away from that stuff and go off and do your own thing. I don't know, to prove some point about, well, they don't need you. You don't need them. Really? You think, you think you can handle that? And you know, I I didn't think that or hear that consciously in my head, but that's what it boiled down to. So I found an interesting uh, position, great organization, National Disability Institute, a gentleman by the name, uh, Michael Morris, who's just brilliant, uh, had been running that organization for a while. And, uh, you know, he's a strong personality, but I thought, well, this would be a fine opportunity. And I did enjoy working there uh, for a while, all the while thinking, well, but this isn't quite, this isn't home for me. But, you know, these are interesting issues. I'm a policy nerd. So you you put just about it. You could put tax policy in front of me and I could probably find something interesting about it. And indeed, a good chunk of what we were doing there was about uh, tax uh, policy. And so I thought, well, this this is, this is intriguing, it, but it's not home. It's not it's not working for blind kiddos, right? It's not fighting for that stuff Monday through Friday like I had done for twenty years before then. And then a, a crazy thing happened, uh, and this is all public. I mean, nothing I'm telling you guys is on the public record. It's all there. But uh, they they uh, weren't money that they were hoping to have come in uh, for that. Uh, policy job that I took at National Disability Institute didn't pan out as they had liked. The therefore the job duties changed significantly there, uh, and some of the support I think that was supposed to be there for me and so I mean like admin and other support uh, ultimately wasn't going to be there. And this happened about I would say a month before the ACB summer convention in 2019. So coming into that summer convention in 2019. You know, the real question was, oh, my God, it, to me personally was, am I even going to have a job? Uh, is this place I'm working at now, is, is my job even going to exist? And frankly, even if it does exist, do I really want this? This is, you know, getting into some things. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Plus, there was a, you know, growing uh, challenge I was having with, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, you're in the blindness system. Yes, of course, just because you're in the blindness system doesn't mean that they won't do everything that, you know, helps you do your job. But for sure, at ACB, AFB, name your favorite B organization, they're going to make sure that you're accommodated, you got technology. It's, a, it's an environment that is intentionally designed for you. And even at an organization as progressive as National Disability Institute, I think I, at that time was the first totally blind person they ever had on staff. And so they're struggling with their with their systems. I was doing presentations for all the time or having more and more as the summer went on there uh, for uh, in PowerPoint, which I had, of course, I mean, I, I have a prejudice against PowerPoint to begin with. But, you know, if you're never really you know, used to doing that, uh, it's uh, it's it's tough uh, as, as someone who's blind, certainly trying to design something in an effective way. 
So things are just building and building and building in terms of being totally stressed out about, you know, here's my alternative. Uh, I'll either lose this job because they don't have the money to keep me, or I'm going to stay here in a job that is increasingly becoming difficult. And of course that has no personal emotional, you know, ties for me. And then, so then stress kicks in. I mean, for easily so then, yeah, go ahead. At this point, do you, do you recognize all the various conversations in your head and realize that, you know, this is more than the choice you made. This is, you know, more than the cutting the nose off despite the face kind of decision. Yeah. Do you, are you starting to feel at this point, depression and, and things that surround it? Or are you still so focused on what you need to do? I was focused on, I, I, I was, you know, anxiety for sure off the charts about not only the immediacy of, I may very well lose this job. Um, and I don't want to make more of this, what I'm about to say than it is, but it's, but it's a fact. I mean, I have always lived my life for better or worse as though, Hey, you, you've, you know, every job I've ever wanted, I've gotten every job that I've had, everything I've done in my life has always been, yeah, hey, uh, you might have had to slow it down a little bit time to time, but it's always been a success. You know, you went from one thing to another. The progress yep. of my career has always been up, 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 you know, modestly, of course, but and I'm no multimillionaire, but, you know, it's, um, everything's been positive. And now you're in a situation where you've, you have, you know, Mark, you have put yourself in a situation where uh, you can't afford to just up and quit uh, work for, you know, years at a time. And you, and you, and you, you're, you've, because you made the decisions you made, now you're stuck in a situation that is less than optimal for you. That is no emotional connection for you that may actually have you pitched out the door and it's your fault. You, you, you know, look at what you've got. This is the mess you made, dude. Uh, and, uh, and, and how did it help you? How did it help other blind people, how did it help blind the blindness system? How did it, you know, it's so I'm totally stressed out. I think the feelings that I had were just mostly totally anxiety, uh, innate, you know, just feeling anxious. And here's where things really start to come off the rails. So it's the lack of sleep. Mm-hmm. I was literally getting, getting to the point where I was having maybe one to two hours of sleep in a 24 hour period. And so then you, I mean, it just, rips you apart i i i always yeah. sort of knew intellectually about sleep deprivation as a technique for torture or whatever but let me tell you uh my if i have any advice to share as a practical matter with people it is you know of course do what the doctors tell you but but the biggest thing if you can manage basic things about you know eat right uh and for sure get decent sleep you may very well be able to to nip uh, you know more bigger problems in the bud uh, early on, because that's what happened to me. And just to the point where toward the end of, uh, August into September of that year, you know, because you've had so little sleep, I mean, you literally are shaking You're you have imbalance. You can barely, you know, you're feeling dizzy. You can't hardly walk, uh, with a certain amount of energy because you're just, you're wiped out. You're totally wiped out. Yeah. You're exhausted. And of course, along and your with senses sleep. that you that you rely on every day are now giving you false information or skewed information, not having the sleep that you needed. Right, and of course, you don't intellectually say, "Oh, yes, well, the reason why you're having these problems, uh, physiological problems, Mark, <laughs> is because because you know you didn't sleep." So, no, what you you translate that all into, I'm I'm falling apart. I am I'm I'm not able to, 
And of course, it's a it's a cyclical thing. So you try then to go to work and manipulate uh, PowerPoint presentations while you're you know half asleep and totally. Fe- it's just it's a disaster. It's just it's just a total disaster. Uh, but of course, because I'm a maniac, I decide to add one final element to the mix, and that was well, gee, uh, if this whole job goes south and I lose it. There's no way I can afford this ridiculous, uh, and I was renting, I didn't own anything. There's no way I can afford this far too expensive place in Crystal City, so uh, in you know suburb of Washington. So maybe I need to find a place that is you know mine that I actually you know I can start to save. I mean, it's, after all, you know, you're 50 years old now. I just turned 50 that year. You're you know time to grow up. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's time to actually own something. So on top of all this, I decide that it's time to move. And I succeeded at that, uh, found a, a condo in Northern Virginia, moved all the stuff out from an apartment where I had lived for 15 years into a new place. Uh, my dear sweet mama, uh, bless her heart, wanted to help. So, of course, she, you know, with the process and all of that, so she was up. And so for the last four weeks there leading up to the end of September, she was here uh, in Washington, D.C., trying to help me settle into a new place so you can imagine an only child with his 80 year old mom uh living together for a month on top of all the other things that were going on uh unbelievable emotions all over the place exhaustion all over the place and i'll connect the dots here with her to say yes we do have you know mental illness in our family uh my grandfather her father uh dealt with well they didn't call it bipolar disorder of course they called it manic depression but he also had other all kinds of complicated health troubles, kidney troubles, everything else. But from my mother's perspective, it isn't just her son is struggling with work stuff and uh, needs, needs to really frankly get some sleep and could probably do for a two week, you know, uh, uh, Mediterranean cruise that would probably help him, <laughs> help him get back <laughs> on his feet by just, you know, relaxing for a little bit. No, she translated that into, this is what my dad went through. And, and, and so now you've got a situation where, uh, gee, Mark, maybe we need to get you some serious help. And, uh, and that's what we did. And especially as things really kind of came to a head there, uh, at later at the end of September with work, um, I just had it. I was just completely just melted down of exhaustion, tired, depressed, and, uh, decided, you know what? Um, yeah, okay. I've got everything set up here in Washington, but I need to call it quits for a little bit. And so I went, back with my mom when she wanted to leave to go back to Florida, left with her, abruptly left, quit my job, uh, and uh, started down a crazy odyssey uh, with medical professionals, a psychiatrist who wanted to put me on some pretty serious medication, which as I look back at it now, was totally not necessary. I mean, at least it was not what needed to be focused on was my sleep and frankly, just taking a break as opposed to rushing to conclusions about uh, what kind of mental or emotional stuff I was going through. But I, again, I can't blame him or that system or, you know, as the psychiatry for coming to that conclusion either, because so I, from, from, from this doctor's perspective, what does he see? He sees in early October of 2019, a guy who is, seems to be an emotional wreck can barely seemed to stand up, right, because I'm totally exhausted. A uh, 50-year-old man who decided to move back with his mother and uh, 
you know, uh, precipitously quit his job, all of the things you would, you know, uh, uh, attribute, attribute to, to a mental breakdown. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and I came pretty damn close to it. And I would but you look at that and you say, right, from his point of view, this looks like impulsive behavior based on, oh, bipolar disorder. Right. And so it's, it's, it, it was a, a very difficult time. And of course, what you deal with then, because you've got this outrageously intense medication that you're dealing with, is all of the raging side effects that go with it. I mean, mm. it's just unbelievable, which just made everything worse. And quite f- frankly, I mean, if, again, another practical piece of advice, I would never tell anybody who's going through emo- mental or emotional stuff, don't do what your doctor tells you to do. That would be totally irresponsible. In fact, whatever your doctor, you follow your doctor's advice. Don't follow Mark's advice. Uh, that having been said, uh, since you're going to do that, then you need to make sure you're picking the right doctor and that you have a relationship with that medical professional. That means you are still in charge. Even if you need some help being in charge, you're still in charge. Because I kept saying then for over that whole fall of 2019 with the doctors we were looking at, these, you know, I'm miserable. The things you've given me have not helped at all. Yeah, they helped a little bit with sleep, but good grief. Surely there must be some other way of catching up on rest and dealing with exhaustion that is not rooted in trying to live with all these other side effects. And, uh, and, and yet when I would say that to the doctor, the only response he basically gave was, yes, but you know, these side effects you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, they're, they're common to these kind of medications. And, uh, and furthermore, uh, some of the things you're talking about might actually be that, uh, you know, uh, we haven't given you enough of the medications. We're, we're going to amp it up even more. Okay, so I would say to you, if you're dealing with this stuff or you have friends or, or dealing with it, do what the doctor says, but for sure, choose the right doctor. And here's how I would me- measure that. If you've got a doctor telling you when you complain about the side effects or, gee, I've been on this now for a while and, uh, and, and it's not helping me. In fact, I'm actually feeling worse. The doctor is responsible for helping you feel better. I mean, that's why you're going there. And if, and if what the doctor hears you saying is the treatment you've given me has actually worsened my circumstances and their only response is to frankly double down, uh, you may be in the wrong place. Uh, so, so be thinking about that. That was for sure my, uh, my challenge. So anyway, I'll, I'll fast forward now and then see if you have any other questions and say, so ultimately I managed to, to make that happen. Uh, I can't really tell you how it was just kind of my, you know, desperately reaching out to them. Okay. Maybe what we need to do is shift this approach. Maybe it's not an intense medical thing. Maybe I just, I frankly just need some time. And uh, so we shifted away from that crazy medication, which I don't think was doing me much of good at all. And uh, and moved much more into you know uh, uh, I was raised in the Lutheran uh, church. Uh, faith has always been really important to me. Uh, managed to kind of shake free of that of that whole psychiatric approach to things with me, uh, and moved more into a a, a Lutheran pastor who was also uh, a professional you know a licensed professional uh, psychologist. I'm, I don't. I believe in pastors. I believe in faith, but I also got to tell you, you know, as as can as has been said in other contexts, you can't pray in a way, okay? And that is that is the truth. I believe the good Lord could do miracles. I'd like to think that, frankly, He helped me out in this whole situation. But you need a professional, and 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 
thank God I found someone who kind of fulfilled both of those roles uh, for me, uh, who, who's a pastor, but frankly is also a professional in the field. Um, and uh, so anyway, so, so because of that, and just gradually, uh, you know, getting, getting the rest that I needed, thinking through things. I mean, all the stuff I've just talked about with, with you all, you all, I, I didn't have any conscious thought about any of that at the time. It was just buried in mess. And so now to be able to see all of this from this perspective is just nothing short of liberation, uh, really. But, you know, I still carry uh, some shame about it all, for sure. I mean, in that whole process, when you go run and hide, I mean, you, you feel miserable. You feel useless. You feel you've – and it's a cyclical thing, right? You, you feel useless. You feel like you – are nothing but a burden to people or you let all your friends down, you know, you're, and then of course you're hiding. So you don't return calls. You don't return invitations. Uh, People ask you to come to meetings. You don't go to them because you're hiding because you don't think you're worth any. Now you really have let your friends down and you really have uh, embarrassed yourself, you know? And, And so it becomes a cyclical thing. And at some point you just have to own up to that, ask people to, frankly, you know, give you a second chance, forgive you, and frankly, try to forgive yourself uh, uh, along piece. along the way, which is really tough. Yeah. Uh, I think, and that is for sure something I'm still dealing with. And like so many things, when you do let folks and systems down, it takes a while to dig out from them. It's like people talk about, gee, I don't want to take a long vacation because if I take a long vacation, it just means that there's that much more work for me to do when I get back. I mean, that that is true. When you kind of end up hiding a little bit like that, then, you know, things accumulate. Uh, Anyway, uh, I'll wrap it up by saying, I think, uh, thank God for pastors. Mm. Thank God for professionals. Thank God for families who stick with you. Uh, Thank God for friends uh, who will have your back. And that's that's an intriguing thing about friends. You you do end up finding out who your real friends are, your real friends. Because sometimes you've got people who you call friends who, you know, they want to be the story and not you. So then they end up uh, gossiping, uh, spreading stuff around about you too soon, too quickly with incomplete information. And then that, that certainly doesn't help your situation either because it makes you feel like God, the whole, God knows what people think about me. Uh, and that's, that's really tough. You know, the, the real friends are the ones who keep you as the focus, just keep at you, but in a very gentle way. Uh, and so it really has been a revelation to me um, as I've sort of, as I've seen that and it's, it clarifies uh, for sure. And gee whiz, maybe there are some people uh, who I thought uh, had my back who really had their own agendas and, and there are others who maybe I didn't nearly uh, honor with my, you know, reciprocal friendship who really do care. Uh, and that's a tough thing to live through, through as well. Anyway, maybe I'll stop there for now. So I definitely want to ask you a couple of questions, then we'll take a quick break and, and open up the conversation to others. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of being careful with medication. Um, yeah. and, you know, and I think that too often in, in this country and, and probably a lot of the major countries around the world, but we're looking for the magic pill syndrome, you know, and we think, okay, you know, a week or so for it to get in our system. And then, you know, it's going to, everything's going to start to get better. All I've got to do is take this pill once or twice a day, possibly three times a day. Yeah. But, you know, once I have this pill, things are, you know, are going to get better. 
And I, you know, it took, it takes a while to understand that medication is to level you, to get yep. you in the place where you can make things better. Exactly. Did, did you have a, did you have a struggle with that when, when you were, you know, kind of blindly pun intended, yep. you know, finding the program that was going to work for you? Well, so, so I, uh, I guess the way I'd put it is I got thrown into the medication deep end uh, at a point in, you know, early on in this whole experience, you know, September, October, well, October of 2019, uh, that didn't let me do that, right? And, 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 and at a time, and at a time when, um, oh, we're getting a little feedback here. Oh, there we go. Uh, uh, at a time in my life where I was in no position to respond effectively to it, right? You're just, you're just on the receiving end of things because you're, you're a mess. And so you, you're not in a position to speak up for yourself or you don't think, frankly, you're in a, you know, who am I to, to question any of this, right? You're just, you're just a mess. And uh, so, yeah, I got, I kind of got tossed in the deep end there. I will say now, and, and this is, this is, the truth i mean i have i'm not dealing with any of those medications because i think um now that i have more techniques for helping me manage things like sleep right uh knowing you know techniques for saying oh hey mark you're in this tough situation uh this is the way that some people are reacting to you here are some things you can do you know you're starting to feel yourself the little shoulders are coming up the blood pressures are blood pressures going up you're feeling yourself getting, you know, getting yourself worked up. Here are some ways you can, uh, you know, manage that. When you can do those kinds of learn some just basic skills uh, to help yourself, uh, that's great. But especially this business of sleep. I mean, thank God we're at a point now where, I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting the sleep that I need, and that makes all the difference in the world. But yeah, I mean, I, I really got tossed in that medication deep end, and. Again, it's hard for me to blame people for that. You know, they hopefully they're doing the best they can with the information they have. I would just reinforce this point because uh, I really want people to hear this: that you, no matter how helpless you may feel, you are or should be regarded as though you are still in charge. And maybe you're not in the moment uh, able to be a, a, a powerful self advocate, meaning that you need family and friends to help you do that. Uh, but your, you know, uh, medical professional you're working with should regard you as though you are a full partner in that process, even if in the moment you might not be able to be. And yeah. and that and that means when you say, "Hey, doc, uh, I've been doing this for a while. You don't understand. I mean, I'm I, I'm 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 uh, you know I'm dealing with auditory you know stuff that is affecting my hearing. I'm dealing with, uh, quite frankly." You know, constipation i mean it's disgusting to talk about but it's a reality where you're like your whole digestive system is coming to a grinding halt and and the doctor doesn't necessarily believe you and thinks that you're just playing games about what you're reporting it's, no these are actual real things that i'm dealing with and they insist that well the only solution apparently is to uh, give you more well that's that's not an appropriate response and and so anyway so i'm not sure if i'm answering your question i feel like i'm all over the place here but that that would be i guess what i have to say about that 
So I'm going to ask you one more and then we're going to take a break and come back. Great. What, what did you have to let go? What parts of Mark that you thought were, were solid did you have to let go? And what parts of Mark did you find that you didn't know were there? Well, I loved your question earlier about the public versus the private persona. Uh, because, you know, over the course of time, uh, I, uh, you know, in, in either my friendships or, you know, personal, uh, you know, more intimate or romantic relationships, I think people who really do know me have seen, you know, the behind closed doors side and have a glimpse of that. Occasionally, maybe it pops out or maybe the people who actually do take the time uh, to to chat with me, maybe that's obvious to them. Uh I think most people would, as you say, would see a different person. Uh, and for me, it was the shock of saying, wait a minute, uh, because of what happened and how you handled this recent situation, uh, you know, people are getting to see behind the veil. Uh, and, and maybe it's okay that people get to see who you really are uh, or a side of you that, you know, people haven't scene which i think gives me the strength to come on a crazy program like this and do it do it do a uh, do a do a uh, you know just let it all hang out there i mean i don't know that i would have been of a mood to to want to do that prior to this whole experience not necessarily because it was ashamed of it but because you get in habits you get in life habits this is who i am i'm the funny guy who loves to talk about legislation and be activist and all of that and that becomes your shtick. Uh, and yet, because of circumstances, you know, uh, the world gets to see you in a different way. And so letting go of, no, people don't always have to see you this way. Maybe it actually might be of value uh, for people to see all of who you are. There's somebody who said, I forget the person who said it, but, you know, don't be afraid to let people see the cracks in your life because the, the people who truly are your friends or the people who could benefit from seeing those cracks will benefit from it and they'll care about you even more as opposed to uh, trying to put forth or, you know, this uh, promote this image of yourself that is frankly not real. And, and uh, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's neighborhood of make-believe. Who, who are you trying to, who are you trying to kid? Uh, and so, you know, letting go, I think it's letting go of that need to be, to appear to be the, the, the same kind of person who wanted to do college and law school in five and a half years, same person who wanted to be, you know, constantly up and up and up and up and up, keep going in. No, it's actually, you know what, uh, real life isn't like that. And I think people will, should hopefully re resonate more with someone who can go through some real uh, stuff, whether it's of their, you know, crummy stuff, if, if it's their own making of their own making or not, and maybe resonate from it, uh, take, take uh, comfort in the fact that they're not the only one going through it. I mean, that, that is, that is your experience when you're doing it. I have to say, I mean, right. It's, it's a bizarre feeling. It's like, no one has ever done this. I, I mean, I'm the only one who's ever gone through something like this and, uh, you know, and it's just not true. Uh, it happens quite, quite often. Uh, among uh, with folks so you know letting go it's letting go of that need to be something you're not and and to embrace being who you really are and trusting the world to accept that about you 
and hopefully having the faith that it's true that you show people the cracks in your life your friends who are truly your friends will continue to be your friends people who can benefit from it might hear something in your story that helps them and then the people who see those cracks and decide to draw some other unfaithful unfavorable unflattering conclusion you can't control them uh and you're going to drive yourself even more crazy if you do uh so anyway that's the answer i got for that one sir all right you know what i think this is a great time to take a pause byron we will be right back with the second half of sunday edition the following programming has been made possible in part by the generous support of BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists. An affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, BITS provides career development for computer professionals. For over 50 years, BITS has been on the forefront of industry, promoting and advocating on information access and technology that improves the quality of life for people who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more about BITS programs and how to become a member by visiting their website at www.bits-acb.org. All right, welcome back to Sunday Edition. I've been speaking with First Vice President Mark Reichert, and uh, we're going to open up the conversation to say hello to my buddy Tyson. And Jesse, are you here with us? I am. We are. Hey, so guys, um, pretty pretty deep conversation. Um, I want to start with Tyson. What, um, what did you pick out of this? What resonated with, with you about Mark's story? Probably the probably talking about what you and I since since the conversation you know I've had over the last several months um, had to do with the sudden loss of it. Um, kind of what came through was the fact that that you know the same thing I did is is as it's going through and you're losing it and you're seeing it even even if it's gradual versus sudden the fact that you know you just like okay cool this is what it is and you deal and you move forward and it's kind of a background thing. Um, because that's very much what I do was just shove it to the side because I've got things I've got to get done. Yeah. I, I know for me, um, it, it really messed with my, my masculinity. It messed with my sense of, of being, you know, that rock star feeling. I, I like Mark, I never really searched hard for a job. I always went from one to the next to the next, you know, I was headhunted and I, whatever I set out to do, I did well. Um, and if I if I wasn't doing well, I could find out what the reasons were and and let go and accept that this might not be for me. But anything that I really wanted, I got. And when I lost my my eyesight so suddenly, after getting through the initial stages, the orientation and mobility, some of the technology and things, and started to have time again, it really messed with my with my sense of self and masculinity. And I think, you know, for the first time, I understood the you know the the phrasing around the stigmata of asking for help and being you know being ashamed i'm a guy i'm a rock star you know i've, I've never been out of work i've never had to struggle you know to to put food on my table and now all these things are happening like what's left of me and um so that's kind of where i'm hoping we can pick this conversation up and and talk about you know what are some of the the stigmatas out there and how do we how do we get rid of them and how do we take our own personal experiences and use that to show others that it, it will be okay. And the first step is the hardest, it always is, but it will end up being okay. How about Jesse? You wanna step up a little bit and 
and talk about, I know um, we're going to talk about your, your call in a few minutes as well, but what are some of the stigmatas that you hear about people reaching out for help? Um, there used to be a huge stigma about people who had mental illness, but now the stigma is not so much from our um, society. It has to do more with our own expectations of ourselves. And so a lot of the stigma that we feel and that we experience is, is something we tend to bring on ourselves. And um, this is one thing that Mark was kind of alluding to. You know, he kind of moved away from his friends. He moved away from his job expectations. He moved away from, uh, you know, what people saw in, in him and the person that people knew him to be into somebody somebody different, somebody that people didn't really know. And they couldn't know because he did not allow them to, to know him or to even know what was going on. So a lot of the stigma that we, <laughs> that we experience, unfortunately, we, we kind of bring on ourselves. And having a mental illness is very much like having any other disability. Um, people may not know how to interact with somebody who is blind. People may not know how to act or react to somebody who is mentally ill or has depression. People may be fearful of somebody who is blind because that could happen to them. Or people may be fearful of somebody with depression because that could happen to them. So it's not anymore that people with mental illness are viewed as dangerous or scary or, um, you know, somebody to be locked away. People just kind of respond like they do with any other disability. If you're comfortable with people with disabilities, being with uh, somebody with mental illness, it really isn't going to bother you. Um, if, you know, you, you're not so comfortable with that, it may. So I would encourage people to at least reach out to your close friends and your family. They're going to be there for you. They're going to be there with you. And they may serve as buffers for other avenues. You know, your best friend might be able to talk with you and your boss together or you and your leader of a committee together and say, you know, he's not up to his best right now. He's dealing with a lot of issues. And so maybe we just need to be supportive. And having mental illness is basically no different than having a medical illness. You know, when somebody breaks their leg, we don't expect them to continue to run a marathon or even walk. It's okay if they're using a wheelchair. They broke their leg, right? Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. So it's the same with mental illness if you're experiencing depression, whether it's a situational thing or whether it's a major depressive episode or a cyclic depressive episode, um, you're not going to be able to do or commit to all the things that you did before. And that's okay. You know, I think one of the things, you know, we, we're not educated <clears throat> enough about mental, mental illness and depression, bipolar, all, all the various 
um, categories. We're not educated enough in this country. So I'm going to ask you, and, and, you know, in general terms, I'm not asking you to put your, your profession on the line, but how do you start to understand that I'm not just feeling bad? I may actually be depressed and there may be a quotient to this that, you know, I can do some work and, and, you know, it's not feeling bad anymore. I'm actually clinically depressed. Well, when you start realizing that uh, the main symptoms of depression are sleep disturbances, as Mark pointed out, and that's a big one, sleep disturbances, appetite disturbances, if you're eating more than you typically do, or you're eating less than you typically do, um, over, over a period of you know, several weeks to a month. We're not talking about today or, you know, just one or two days. But over a period of a week, several weeks, um, mood changes. If all of a sudden you're finding yourself crying a lot or you're finding yourself having outbursts of anger, because anger is often manifest of depression and especially yep. for men, um, because our society still tends to say that men really are not supposed to cry, but it's okay if a man gets angry, right? So people learn as little children that girls can still cry and boys have to get mad. So if you start finding yourself having more crying or more anger, um, if you start finding yourself thinking about the past, oh, what did I do 20 years ago? Or how did that affect me? Or I wish I had done this or that, you know, and you're constantly dwelling on the past, if your energy is not what it used to be, used to be somebody who got up and, and got your shower and ate your breakfast and happily took your dog out for a walk, you know, got some exercise, now all of a sudden you find yourself not even hardly able to drag yourself out of bed. Those are all symptoms of depression. So when it becomes a problem for you, not me, but you, then it's time for you to seek help. All right, let's circle back to Mark. Um, when, you know, in this process, is there a point where you had to give it, they say in, in a lot of the 12-step programs and, and in some other mental health programming, you know, that you give it up to the higher power, that, you know, you, you truly understand you can't do this all by yourself anymore. Did did you have that moment, and what was that like for you if you did? Oh, boy. Uh, let's see. How can I do this without uh, uh, needing to reach multiple times for the tissue box here? I guess that's okay. Um, that's I do. okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. You go for I, it. I, I, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Faith has always been really important to me. Um, a, a, a wild piece of this was that as I started really getting into, you know, when I, when I consider to be like, if there is a day that was like ground zero of Mark's little <laughs> experience, it would be uh, September 23rd, 2019. Cause that's the day that mom was going back home. And I decided I was going to go run away and hide and quit my job and just turn the world off uh, for a while. Cause I was just a wreck. Uh, but it had been, you know, things obviously been building to that moment. But what you feel in that moment when you think, I'm, I'm useless, I'm, I, what are the crazy decisions that I've made? You start getting into you know, torturing yourself with, well, why did I make those decisions? Well, it's because of past crummy decisions that I've made. I've, I've exposed myself 
to all the things that have happened to me. Now, I'm the one responsible for it. And of course, if you add the element of faith in this, then you say, right. And the crummy decisions I've made, uh, they're not right, right? It's not just they were bad or they didn't turn out well for me. They are, they're wrong. They might even be sin, right? You start to get into that whole cycle. And, and quite frankly, maybe they were. I mean, you know, people are imperfect things. They do crummy things to other people. I mean, Lord knows there are things. I didn't need to go through depression to know this. Uh, but I mean, there, there are decisions I've made about how, you know, things have worked out between me and other folk. Uh, some of the young ladies in my life, some of the way that, you know, people I know, colleagues. I mean, you know, gee whiz, why in the world did you do it that way? You know, and, and they were wrong. But in the context when you're suffering like that, it's, it's boy, the, the microscope is totally on that. And it's all about, this is another, you know, just yet another reason why, Mark, you're nothing. You're nothing. Um, and it's, it's just awful. How do you turn that around? First of all, once I kind of got through the haze of that whole medication craziness uh, that was just warping everything even further, uh, to seek really good, patient uh, counsel. And, and in my case, uh, you know, again, I would credit my faith uh, upbringing or that thing with having, therefore, be, you know, being in a network of folk who can help. Uh, and, and they just think that council needs to work with you and talk through it. Uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, they take a confession with a capital C pretty seriously. In the Lutheran tradition, maybe not so much uh, in that sort of very strict sort of way. But I tell you, uh, being able to name a problem uh, yes. sure, sure helps to subdue it. And not, not to, I, I'm such a nerd, but, uh, you know, in the uh, Kabbalah, or in even frankly in uh, you know uh, uh, different African traditions or whatever, the whole point about subduing a spirit, particularly a negative spirit, if you know their name, you can control them, and that's the whole thing about why names uh, are such powerful, considered amulets or whatever, because the whole theory behind it makes perfect sense. If you can name it, identify it, claim it for what it is, uh, yeah, can. you can subdue it. And so that was part of that whole process for me is, and, but of course you don't want to do it with, with, with someone who's, you don't want to do it from an unhinged perspective. You want to do this from a perspective that is, you know, professionally recognized, tempered with good real world common sense and someone who's going to be patient as you walk through it. So that's, I think when that really started to happen uh, for me is going through that naming uh, process. Jason, you, um, you know, you're pretty much a rock star, and, and we, uh, ACP is very, you know, glad to have your rock star talents. But I'm sure some of what, I'm sure, you know, some of what we've been talking about has hit you when you look back on your journey. When, when for you, did you, did you come to terms with, it was okay to feel bad. It was okay to, to want to crawl back into bed for the day and just put the covers over and say, you know what, I'll deal with this tomorrow. Um, when, when did you let go personally of being, you know, the rock star provider, family guy, all the things you were doing and just say, you know, this is where I am now is really not that bad and I'm going to make the most of it. Uh, I still have yet to do that. I, I haven't just, reached that. I have not reached that point yet where I'm, where I'm just, where I'm good with it, where I'm solid with it. 
I struggle with it every day. You, know, you, you say, when, you know, when am I okay to just lay down and, and pull the covers back over? You know, that, that was this morning to me. Um, you know, we, it's a, it's wow, man, a daily, that's really open a, and honest of you. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. It's, thank it's you. a daily, it's a daily thing. You just, you have your good days and you have your bad days. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I, I think some of the isolation things that are going on due to the, the last year worth of, of, you know, being safe medically and stuff like that, that that's kind of contributed to it. Um, we don't get out and about with people cause I'm, I'm by nature an, an extrovert. So I need contact with people. Um, and I just don't get it as often as I would love to. Um, so yeah, sitting here, you know, going, okay, what am I going to do? And today I've got to do this. And it's like, ugh. I don't know. That just doesn't feel like something I want to do today. Okay. But you know what, but, but again, you struggle with it. It's like, it's like, um, you know, every day is like coming out of a, of a cocoon. Um, when you're in these, when you're having these days, it's like, uh, you, you go in one day as one thing and you kind of encase yourself in this little bit of a, of a mental chrysalis. And then, you have to fight your way out of it every day um, to emerge as, as the butterfly for the day. And then the cycle repeats itself. And sometimes that cycle is a daily thing and sometimes it's a weekly thing, but, but uh, you know, like I said, I, I don't know for me rounding back around and circling back around that, that, that I've came to that point. Do you worry that as, as the pandemic recedes and God willing, let it please recede sooner rather than later, um, do you worry that the world is going to be too different for you to catch up? And this is to, to all three of you guys. And... Mark, you want to go first? Or Jesse? Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, as it recedes, it, it's interesting. I, I would love to talk about at some point before we hang up today, uh, the notion of of uh, triggers and what things trigger things uh, for us to go through stuff. I mean, for me, uh, those who know me really, really, really well know that, you know, I, I, because of just who I am and kind of the mood swings and everything else. I mean, certainly I, it's not the first time this whole experience of, of yours truly back in 2019. It's not the first time I've reached out to sort of professional folk for exactly uh, Anthony, what you're talking about. Hey, can you help me sort of level out some of these, you know, uh, extremes of my little personality here. And, you know, that, that can work. I, I say that to say, in my case, you know, I am who I am. And then I lived through a series of triggers, triggering events or decisions of, of mine or both uh, that just took what was already there, that little pilot light of, uh, you know, depressive tendencies or that kind of thing that got fanned into one heck of a big flame. And so I wonder about uh, what all of us have learned or experienced or have built into our little psyches now, having lived through the, the, the pandemic, uh, and what, what will happen in the future uh, to trigger various uh, emotional reactions. Uh, I saw the other day, I can't remember which news outlet it was, but and I, I, I want to read more about this. The headline was something like, uh, as the world struggles to open back up, uh, uh, we will see what anxiety, what, what anxieties people will have in coming to terms with the world the way it was, right? In, in other words, 
Stop. Stop. <laughs> we have a we have a dog who's excited about that. Um, so, so the, the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, some people who are in, in prison for years talk about the fact that eventually you kind of get used to the walls of prison and that people who are then ultimately released back into the community, there's something, you know, deeply disturbing almost, or you really have to work through the process of reintegration because you don't have the, the walls you hated and feared ultimately became something that you, you became attached to. And so I wonder what all of us are going to sort of experience. What, what will, we all talk about getting back to that bar and having the amazing happy hour experience. Uh, how many of us are going to go to that bar for the first time and think, my God, what am I, I going to catch here? <laughs> or, how, you know, or whatever. Is everybody else safe? In this anyway, so just a lot of random thoughts there. Mark, that's actually kind of interesting because as you were saying that last, that last thing there, I was thinking to myself, you know, that's kind of, when I was in the military, I, I, and I know a lot of guys who come out of the military and they have a hard time adjusting to life outside of, of the uniform. And, and yeah. uh, cause they've been in such a, a strict kind of a, of a, of a culture yeah. that it's like a culture shock moving from one thing to another. And I'm curious if that's, I mean, just on a, on an intellectual societal cultural level, if that's what we're going to experience as kind of a culture shock moving back into um, you know, do we feel safe even being, you know, non-socially distanced with people? Is is hugging people who we don't intimately know going to become a thing of the past? Yeah, absolutely. And if I may, Tyson, to, if you're willing, uh, I'd be interested in your thought. Just so grateful that you're willing to share uh, that about, you know, sort of your almost everyday experience. I mean, in my case, you know, the major triggering thing for me was this sense of rejection uh you know gee I, I give my whole heart and soul into this thing called the blindness world and gee whiz it seems like they whoever they are don't want it and then it just things spiraled from there because of course i overreacted to that uh i wonder how we might develop skills to sort of say okay well what are the things that are particular triggers for me you know for me it may be that sense of belonging oh you didn't let me you know come play the reindeer games uh for other people it may be other triggers that really set off things that are kind of laying there under the surface but then are brought to the surface by life events or or other things i would if if i were to kind of continue that thought i'd say that for me you know my, my triggers are situational um, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you, you brought up the 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 rejection thing. You know, like getting yeah. a rejection on a job, man. That's yeah. that to me is that's a personal thing because yeah. I, I don't just put in, I don't just blank it out like thirty or forty things. I'll, I focus on one or two. Yeah, and I put yeah. a lot of energy into it. When I and when when I see that rejection letter or that form email back, it's just like, boom. You know, you just dropped a three ton weight on me. Yeah. yeah. Um. And, and it's all how we deal with it. And, and, you know, you kind of sit with it and live with it for a minute and, and, and then you react to it, um, yeah. you know, through things in our lives that we live with and, or we experience. I think, I think that's probably the, the greater thing is what you're talking about too, for me mm-hmm. is when, when something comes along and it kind of upsets our, our worldview and especially that worldview of ourselves and how we fit into it. Exactly. It, it, definitely is is a thing of self-worth you know yeah. the yeah. i'm not good enough yeah 
and and brings into our uh, you know our own doubts about ourselves that we've yep. that we've kind of convinced ourselves of inside in our own internal monologue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And getting and getting some kind of an exterior confirmation of that can yep. be really hard. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to say, we may have been helped along that process. You know, some of us have had amazing parents. Some of us have parents that left a lot to be desired. Some of us have had life situations that reinforce things that we've already been saying very, very low, whispering to ourselves deep in the dark. You're not good enough, or you're not going to get this. You're not going to be what they need. You're not going to be. And I think one of the things for me is I've started to unpack my feelings and stop myself and say, you know, I feel myself getting agitated. Why am I getting agitated? What, what is the reason for this? You know, and, and really dissecting, is this truly what I'm feeling or am I masking something else? And, and I found that I mask a, a lot. I replace one feeling with another because I'm more comfortable dealing with that other feeling. And I can rock that. I can make sure that, you know, whatever's going to happen along that process is going to happen the way I need it to happen. But, you know, it doesn't go away. It just sits on the shelf until it either falls off and starts making a whole lot of noise or yep. something else triggers it again. So that's, that's, those are some really, really good points. And I think we should definitely expand this conversation into, you know, into another Sunday edition where we talk about triggers and where we talk about, um, how do we unpack feelings and decide whether they're valid or not? And, you know, are they leading to us adding to our own depressive episodes or possible depressive episodes because we're not unpacking and taking care of them the way, you know, in a way that would, that would free them rather than, you know, keep them there on that shelf. Yep. Yep. One of the things very quickly that is important to understand, everybody has irrational beliefs and that's what these I'm not good enough. Everyone has to like me. I have to please everybody. You know, all those types of beliefs are, and there are many irrational beliefs. There are 12 that are noted, but there are many, many others. And so we all have these irrational beliefs. And one quick thing that you can do is when you receive that email that says, no, you're not getting this job, or no, I'm not going to interview you, or um, you realize that everybody was invited to a party, but you weren't, things like that. What is your first, your first thought to that? Is it, I'm not good enough. See, nobody likes me. No. Write down that negative thought that you have, and then it's up to you to, um, prove that and and we can talk about that in a whole other session (laughs) and I do talk about that on my calls as well but if you can learn to be aware of those irrational beliefs and you can learn to get rid of them as many as you can you're not going to get rid of them all then you can prepare for the triggers the triggers of you just got five job rejections or you lost your best friend or you broke up with your partner or they broke up with you. You can deal with those triggers in a more rational way. I really appreciate. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
Is it okay? Uh, <laughs> hi there. Uh, I, I love the fact that you talk about the irrationality of the situation. So yes. let me let, let me do an us. Uh, 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 that was then. This is now moment with you, which is to say, when did things really to, uh, come to start coming off the rails for me at a time when a job that I had seemed to be unsure that the future was unsure? And gee, I had made those decisions to put myself in that situation. Well, let me tell you. I mean, here it is now, April of 2021, and I am so grateful to our friends at AER who a year ago uh, found themselves in need of, of, of an executive director because they unexpectedly separated from my predecessor. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, because I had worked there before, they, some folks reached out to me and said, hey, uh, we're going through this wild ride transition. Uh, do you think this might be something that you could help us with? Which, of course, I said, oh, well, you know, try That's That sounds really interesting to me. Under my breath and after the phone call, I'm like, they want me? They really want, are you kidding? They really want me to do this? That's amazing, right? So, of course, that was a huge shot in the arm. But here I am in April of 2021. And what am I living through? I'm living through a job that doesn't have a whole lot of future certainty to it. And I'm there because of things that either choices I've made or that were sort of situational. How is this different from what happened in 2019? I mean, in a certain fundamental sense, they're very similar situations. And yet I would say that I'm feeling about as healthy, you know, emotionally and otherwise as I felt in a very long time because I'm on the other side of, a, of an experience that hopefully has given me more skills to live with it. You know, so what that plays to is exactly what you said, that at that time I had sort of worked myself up into a total, you know, irrational frenzy mm -hmm. instead because you know take things on the few uh, as they are yeah you're right uh your job is uncertain uh welcome to the real world <laughs> those right. are real facts and and so okay great uh do you like that situation or don't you are you prepared to live with it for a while and see how it plays out or not if you're not try to change it and do it in healthy ways don't don't get into this business of gee i guess i'm i'm a wreck or you know they're out to get me or, or, or those kinds of things. And just sort of just the facts, ma'am, uh, is a, uh, is a, is a, a good, healthy philosophy. I think. Jesse, for me, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of accepting something, feeling it, making, making myself really kind of unpack it and make sure at this point that I'm feeling everything surrounding it so that I don't leave, I don't leave something, you know, to trigger me later to, to be a thorn later um I, I guess what i'm asking is how how long is it okay for us to kind of dwell in in the bad feelings i, I think well, and, that's and if really I'm completely point. wrong please tell me but i think we actually should live in those bad feelings a little bit to 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 accept them and then release them um i, I know when i was in therapy a while ago um, I, I did this whole trick about putting my feelings into rocks and basically just throwing them at, you know, standing on the other side of the ferry and throwing them back out into the harbor, the ones that, that I didn't want or need anymore. Um, but how long should we live in bad feelings? Well, it depends on how those bad feelings are impacting your life. If they are keeping you from doing things that you need to do, that you absolutely need to do, like, you know, take your dog out or play with your children things that are really impacting other people then it's probably not 
a real good idea to to dwell in them and what you might want to do is give yourself permission each day to set aside a time be it 10 minutes 15 minutes a half hour you know that you're going to dwell in your bad feelings but you've already taken your dog out or you've played with your children or you've done the things you need if it's not impacting other people then it's probably okay to give yourself longer to do that, to kind of, you know, dwell in your bad place. Uh, give yourself a week or two. Usually when people give themselves permission to do this, what they find is they're not there as long as they thought they were going to be. They thought they would need. <laughs> yep. yep. Because it is real hard to sit and feel bad for yourself for a whole half hour or a whole hour. You know, you just, after a while, you're going to say, I'm done. I'm not going to say. That's that's exactly right. And and, and I will tell you, I love what you're saying because, so I, before this whole experience, I was never down or condescending about talk therapy or anything. You know, I, I know intellectually it's valuable. I kind of always thought, ah, well. Uh, maybe that, you know, it's, it's intriguing, uh, but never really fully appreciated the value of it. And what I certainly learned fairly early on, again, once kind of getting out of the medication haze and starting to really kind of dig more with what, you know, uh, get, get the stuff out of me. It's not about putting the stuff into me to fix me. It's, it's one of the things that are ticking around in it I need to talk about and work through is to have that one hour a week uh, to park uh, issues or concerns or whatever. And to know that you've got that and to say, and, and to very consciously as over the course, especially early on, you know, you yeah. start to worry about things, perseverate about things. You, you know, wait a minute. Nope. Uh, I got my appointment with uh, pastor Rick at, you know, two o'clock on Friday. Uh, something to talk about with him, write that down. Okay, great. It doesn't mean that you're going to overcome it completely, but boy, it's, it sure is helpful to have that place to park that idea and to know that you will have an opportunity to, uh, my words, nobody else's. Indulge yourself in as much, uh, you know, angst and whatever with someone who's a professional to help you as you need to. That's a really important thing to be able to have, I think. Yeah, I think this research shows that people with depression, whether it's situational or chemical, yeah, um, benefit most from therapy. If, mm-hmm. if you have a good relationship with that Correct. therapist. Correct. Yeah, and that therapist truly understands you. Yes, Practically, yes. People I... with clinical or clinical depression typically yep. do benefit from medication, but they still need therapy. Absolutely right. And people with situational type depression really don't benefit too much from medication. Yep. But they do benefit from therapy. Correct. So, <laughs> you know, there, there you go. Yep. And Jesse, you know, the first therapist you get may not be the one. The second therapist you, get, you get may not be the one, but, you know, eventually you'll find that great fit. And, um, you know, unless you're playing on that level field, you know, as far as medication is concerned and the therapy, you know, the therapy is you got to get both of them. You got to get both, both houses in order to, to maximize the benefits. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your calls, and then Byron, while she's telling us, if you want to see if there are any hands that want to pop in real quick before we are done for the day. But tell us about the calls you host for the community. Um, every 
Wednesday at five o'clock, I have I taken care of our mental health and we talk about all kinds of topics. Um, and I try to tailor them to how they affect people who are blind or visually impaired because, you know, many times when you read articles or you, even when you go to therapy, <clears throat> those articles are not written with a person who is visually impaired in mind. And we, we face yeah. different issues and have different struggles um, than our sighted peers. And that's just the reality. Um, but some of our topics, oh, we've talked about a lot of things. Um, this week, we're going to get talk about how to get more of what you want out of life. We do talk about, we're going to talk about irrational beliefs, um, burnout, emotional blackmail, uh, suggestibility, setting boundaries, um, dealing with judgmental people, taking care of yourself, you know, so it, it just goes on and on. Um, I am always looking for topics, but we do that every Wednesday. It's not a therapy group because I can't do therapy as much as I would like to over, um, you know, nationally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it is psychoeducation, basically, um, gives people some tips for how to deal with whatever they're dealing with. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about grief, um, you know, how grief has affected many people because of COVID. And um, so, yeah, we talked about all kinds of topics. Um, people can contact me with questions if you have a question, but you didn't really want to put it out there over the air. I'll be more than happy to answer it. Again, not in a therapeutic way, but just support, um, you know, here's some suggestions that you might try. Um, that's what that's we great. do. <laughs> that's excellent. Byron, do we have anybody who wants to pop in and uh, comment or ask a question? We do. We have three hands currently. Um, we can start with uh, Anisio. Um, Anisio, you can go ahead and unmute and speak. Hey, Anisio. Welcome to Sunday Edition. Hey, good afternoon. Can you hear me? We are clear. Anthony, first of all, um, I, I really appreciate you, you providing the space for <clears throat> such an important discussion. By the way, whoever has the dove on the background, I don't know if it's Jesse or Tyson, but man, that sounds, it's so peaceful. Um, but I, I wanted to, uh, I don't know the other two people, so I wanted to, but I know Mark and I wanted to acknowledge his courage <clears throat> to do what he's doing because obviously is important and, and hopefully it's also therapeutic, but in, in a industry where he and I work, that is so small where everybody knows each other and all that kind of stuff. And, it, it, it really takes courage. And I'm hoping that he has, he, I'm talking as though you're not here, Mark, but I <laughs> hope you you are getting, are receiving the, the support um, of all your colleagues. And I wish I was close and I certainly didn't had no idea, uh, but now I, I understand why um, we were unable to connect. So yeah. I, I wish you the best uh, and, uh, and you have, Obviously, my support. Well, that's very Again. kind of you. And and let me just say, so Anisio, you you and I don't know. I mean, we've known each other a long time, but not yes. necessarily deeply. 
But honestly, sir, I, I mean, I consider you one of those true good friends because of the kind of support you've given over the course of time and even just your comments now. I will say, and I don't know if Tyson has, uh, if, if you've got your own experience along this line, sir. I mean, one of the one of the sort of ongoing, well, I guess I'll just call it what, how I feel, painful things is to see some people still reacting to me in a negative way or a way that I think is, you know, you know gee whiz, I guess, I guess Marcus used goods. Uh, quite frankly, I see this in some folks I would have considered friends. To be yeah. very candid with you, I see this in, uh, I see this in, in some ACB leadership. Um, I see this in some professional colleagues. And of course, the flip side of that is, people who you don't necessarily know that well, who then go out of their way to reach out and have their own experience to, to share. And, and so that, that's tough. Uh, am I getting the support that I need? I, I, I'm grateful for it. I'm not going to tell you that I, you know, there's some sort of deficiency someplace, but I'd be a liar if I didn't tell you that that's sort of ongoing. I mean, you have to live with, you cannot unring a bell. Right. right? So, I mean, the yeah. bell, there it is. That's it. So move forward. And people are going to react differently. Humans do different things. But wow, is that that can be tough uh, when you see those kind of reactions that maybe aren't so helpful. Well, well that's I'm, what I'm, happens when you look inside yourself and you really decide, you know what, I'm going to look at myself unvarnished. I'm going to look at everything. When you turn your eyes, you know, pun intended, back to the world, you also see the world much more clearly. And, yes. you know, there's always going to be people that are afraid of people that are self-actualized, people that, you know, you were self-actualized in a different way before all this. And now, you, you know, now your path is is so much wider and people are always going to be afraid of that. And they tear at what they're afraid of. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, Mark, that we we in an interesting, interesting twist of turns and turns that we in fact, are working together again. So yes, that's a lovely thing. <laughs> Appreciate that. Awesome, yes. Anisio. Thank you so much. Byron. You're welcome. Who is up next. All right, coming up next, we have Barbara. Barbara, you can go ahead and unmute and speak. Oops. And I'm not hearing Barbara. Um, I'm going to ask. I'm going to go ahead and click the button to ask you to unmute and see if that makes a difference. In a minute. Oh, I heard you there for a second. All right, let's jump to the next. And if Barbara joins us, we'll let her pop in afterwards. Sure. Peter, you are next. Hey, can you all hear me? Yep. Hey, Peter. Hey, Mark. First of all, Mark, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I, I it, it's These stories are really important for us to hear, and I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Um, there, there are two things that I want to say very quickly. Um, the first, uh, well, comment and a question. The, the comment is, as one who's, who has um, been around a lot of people with psychiatric disabilities over the past 10 years, I really hope that psychiatrists, they have a bias toward popping to giving pills. And sometimes that's really, really destructive. And I guess what I want to say is for those of us who are trying to support people going through these tough times, um, you know, we, we really do need to be aware that I think there really is a bias in the, in the psychiatric community to give meds first before thinking. Um, yeah. You know, at Mark's, Mark's situation, you know, my sense is, Mark, that if you'd got a lot of sleep, a lot of your problems would have gone away a lot faster if, if yeah. you 
you know, rather than giving all these crazy meds that, and this is, this, this, I, I've seen this so often, it's incredibly frustrating to, to, yep. to witness. And so, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I know their life is difficult and, and all that, but I really yep. wish that psychiatrists would, would, anyway, so I, that's, that's my, my rant on that particular topic. Appreciate that. Uh, the, the second, a very brief comment uh, is, is that all feelings are valid. They, they may not be helpful and they may be very helpful, um, but all feelings are valid. And, and I think that's a really important point, at least for me. Um, and, and, the, and then, then, then the question, and the question to you, Mark, is we've heard sort of about your, a lot about your descent. We haven't heard a lot about your ascent. And I'm really curious to know, when did you have the sense that things were, were going to be okay? Was there a moment in your journey back to, you know, uh, whatever the right word is, um, that you felt, okay, I'm, I'm in a better place now. Things are going to be okay. Uh, it was somewhere in the late spring, early summer at AER. We don't have zero time to go into this, but bottom line is, you know, look, AER is in a bit of a, a transition period, right? I mean, it's the public facts are, they separated from a previous exec. Obviously, we're all living through COVID. So AR had to cancel its big conference in 2020, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow I found myself, you know, dealing with some pretty tough uh, personnel issues, dealing with some tough uh, budget issues. And I was just digging on in the way that I otherwise would. And, you know, they're tough things. And yet somehow, you know, uh, that little, that little fight, that, that little fire in the belly was back in. Um, I'm going to put a pin for you for a moment. We um, yeah. have to get off the air, but we're going to keep the conversation going for a few oh, minutes good. afterwards. Okay. Uh, Peter will actually be back with me next Sunday. We're going to be talking about his book, Friends in Art, and so much more. Thank you for listening today, Mark. Thank you for your bravery. Je uh, Jesse and Tyson, as always, thank you. We'll continue this conversation Thanks in so a much. moment. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email celebrationac, that's the word celebration, with the letters ac at aol.com. Look forward to hearing from you, and let's brunch again next Sunday.